Olaso. This morning we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion. Now in our second phase we are focusing on that dimension of suffering called the suffering of change. A very brief review. That dimension, that bandwidth of suffering is not simply due to the fact that composite phenomena are constantly in a state of change or flux. Not that simple. No, it's directly related to the mental affliction of attachment, craving, greed. And the antidote that is correlated with that, the counterpart, is samadhi, single-pointed attention. So those are good ones to remember. What's the culprit? Why are we vulnerable to suffering of change? Because of attachment. And is there any antidote, or are we just stuck? No, there's an antidote. Don't need to go all the way to Vipassana, let alone Rigpa or Vajrayana. Actually, the antidote, one sufficient, relatively, is single-pointed attention, samadhi, the higher training in samadhi. Now, this afternoon, uh, and welcome back, Laura. Glad to see you back. Uh, in response to Laura's question earlier, I will get to this this afternoon, a bit more unpacking of the five obscurations, how they relate to the five dhyana factors. But I'll just highlight one of them right now. Among the five obscurations, and obscuring what? Obscuring the substrate consciousness, the bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality of substrate consciousness. Why aren't we experiencing it right now? It's it's obscured. By what? Five obscurations. One of them is, it's called Duryodhana Chakpa, attachment to, craving, clinging, desire, craving for, the bounties of the desire realm. That's, in other words, all this objective stuff out here other people, places, things, and intangibles like reputation and so forth. That's one of the five obscurations. Of course it is. Insofar as you're immersed in that, you will not be attending to your substrate consciousness. You'll not be turning away from the desire realm. You're fixed on it. Fixated like a deer staring into the headlights. That's going to make me happy. Headlights coming closer and closer. Looking good. I like light. (laughs) So the direct antidote for that obscuration is in Tibetan, single-pointed mind. Single-pointed mind. Samadhi. Interesting, isn't it? Not obvious, but it happens to be true. Now, in developing compassion for those now, of course, it's not just other people or non-Buddhists or Hinayanas or something like that. It's for all of us who are in samsara and still subject to such attachment, craving, clinging. The compassion has to go deeper. It's, it's not that is, the suffering is not obvious. In fact, the person you may be attending to may be just having a great time. If you ask them, "How are you doing?" Wonderfully, swell, just like the deer. Oh, I'll illustrate this with one of the most powerful nature documentaries I've ever seen. It was really gripping. True story. It took place out there in, in Africa, heart of Africa. And the photographer was able to get the whole thing. I saw it. A hyena was out on the prowl, hunting and gathering, so to speak. And to the hyena's great delight, found a lion cub without the mother to protect it. 
You can imagine how happy that hyena was. Mmm, lion kitten, just what I wanted for lunch. One can imagine the hyena just chuckling, if not just bursting into laughter with glee. You know, laughing hyenas, you've heard of them. <laughs> so, the hyena went in for the kill, and boy was it easy. It's a lion cub. Hyenas are tough. You look at their jaws, they're massive. The hyena went in for the kill, whacked the, uh, the lion cub, no time, no time flat. The lion cub didn't have a chance. Munching down a nice lion kitten flesh, but there's one really happy hyena. Success. Happy days. Finished her meal. It's meal. I don't know what gender. Headed back to the pack. And if we anthropomorphize this a little bit, was bragging to all, let's say his, all his friends, man, I really got the lions. I got one of their cubs and it was yummy. Maybe, maybe you know, if we really anthropomorphize, you're going to play this a little bit. Oh, congratulations. Good to you. You know, you know, don't beaten up on it. Good for you. You got one of them. So really feeling happy about that. So, so far it looks really good for the, for the hyena side. They're really happy. That one is really happy. Nice full tummy full of lion cub. Meantime, Mama Lion comes to the bloody remnants of her cub. She's not a happy lioness. She rounds up the rest of the pride. They work in, they work in prides. They work in packs, you know, and they're very smart. And they're some of the most, oh, efficient killers in all of Asia, in all of Africa. Mama Lion, Lioness, rounded up the pride. And they, with very good noses, they tracked down the hyena pack. They went in like, you know, special forces. Went in at night. They now got them surrounded. And then they lunged. And they picked out the hyena who killed the cub, separated that hyena from the rest of the pack, and then ripped it to shreds. There were just bloody remnants. There was nothing of that hyena left. And then they went home and left the rest of the pack, flipping in the bird on the way out. It was creepy. It was revenge. So if you had seen that whole movie, and then you watched it a second time, you might actually, even when the hyena is going in for the cub, killing the cub, enjoying the cub, happily going back, blood drooling down, down his mouth, heading back and bragging to his friends, you could feel, man, oh man, compassion. I mean, you're really ugly, but, oh, you are in deep doo-doo. And you don't even know it. But, oh man, your days are numbered. Oh, poor you if you knew how it's coming out. That's what the Arhats feel like about us. <laughs> We're going out hunting and gathering, grabbing stuff, holding on to it. Sometimes out of the force of craving and attachment, we'll, we don't mind a little bit of lying here, a bit of cheating there, a little bit of exploitation here, and deceiving and so forth, anything to get what we want, and then we get hold on to it without a bit more de deception and, and blah, 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 blah. After all, we have to protect what is ours. And enjoying it. The mafiosa don is enjoying the babes, the swimming pool, got it made, big fat cigar, life is grand. 
or so many people in the business world, not all, I mean, it's a minority, but they're rather very minority, get there by slashing, gouging, trampling, really unethical behavior. It's not just business world. And it's a minority, but they are there and in other fields as well. And boy, they look like they got it made. They got their yachts. They got their wealth. They stepped on everybody's heads. Hard to feel compassion for them. Unless you take the longer view. And then it's kind of looking at the he and Ayina. Oh, poor you. Poor you. So, if one places this reality of suffering, of change, just within the context of one lifetime, it's pretty neat. It's pretty nasty. Because there we are. Whether Whatever you believe about the future, what happens at death, you're still subject to aging. You're still subject to sickness and death. So that's kind of a really bad recipe, bad, bad framework for getting your jollies out of samsara. You know, the hunter-gatherer mode. It's not pretty. The materialist is banking on that. It may not be pretty, but it's not that bad. Maybe you can get away with a lot of stuff and then you just die of old age and it's okay. What if they're wrong? They know so little about consciousness. Basically, nothing of real significance. The fundamental issues. What causes it? What's its nature? How does it interact with the brain? What happens at death? They don't know any of that stuff. How could they? They're stuck in brain. They're staying behavior. I mean, why would you get a clue? You understand phenomena by looking at them, not just by looking at things that are associated with them. That's just a scientific fact. So, if it's true, if it's true, there's continuity some individual consciousness beyond death. It changes everything. And so to gain insight into the reality of the suffering of change, to apply the antidote of samadhi, especially samadhi directed right in upon consciousness itself, that's enough to bring about a shock wave that is a revolution at the most existential level. Nothing will remain the same. If you want a revolution in the way you view reality, develop samadhi. Because the samadhi, you can direct your attention where you will. You can probe in depth, and it changes everything. If you'd like to radically reorient your whole priorities, your whole set of values, try samadhi. That will do the job. And if you'd like to radically reorient, revolutionize your whole way of life, try samadhi. That will be the job. That will do the job. So the antidote for our vulnerability to suffering of change, really overwhelmingly, as the cause is attachment, so is the antidote, samadhi. There are deeper antidotes, of course, vipassana. But this one is just what the doctor ordered. It's appropriate to the illness. That level of attachment, samadhi, is actually, that'll do it. So as we venture into the practice, I would encourage you, invite you then, to develop compassion for yourself. It's not enough, as we well know, it's not enough just to become disillusioned with maybe a marriage that breaks up, or a business venture goes south, goes sour, or you suffer ill health, or you have an accident, or family tragedy, or economy goes down. It just, it's not enough. People just get bummed out. They get depression, and they take a drug, and then they go, you know, business as usual. Sometimes I can just kind of co- make their way through. It's not enough. It's not enough to get insight into the reality of suffering of change, to disillusion us, from the underlying cause, and that is attachment. Because we just suppress it with drugs and, ex- and entertainment and work and so forth. We just shoot the messenger, try to kill the symptoms. It's not enough. There has to be an alternative. It's very much like in science. In science. 
And that is, in the late 19th century, there were some gaping holes in the in classical physics, the notion of absolute space, time, absolute matter, that classical physics really could cover everything in the natural world. There's some gaping holes, some really big ones, ultraviolet catastrophe, the absence of a luminif luminiferous ether, and then more and more gaping holes came up. But it wasn't enough just to have a worldview that, frankly, is really defective, got some big holes in it. It's not enough. People, even if you're out in the middle of the ocean and all you have is one little tiny sinking dinghy, a little tiny lifeboat that's sinking and you're surrounded by sharks, you're going to stay in your sinking dinghy. You're going to stay in your little lifeboat that's sinking rather than jump out and, and be faster shark food. Well, it's a crappy little dinghy. It's sinking, but you're going to still stay there unless you see a better dinghy that's not sinking. And likewise, you may have a worldview that is utterly defective, really got holes in it, and you're sinking, but you won't jump out unless you have a better alternative. So, Max Planck, Einstein, Werner Heisenberg, Niels Bohr, and so forth, came up with a couple of better dinghies. And that was a revolution in physics. The old one didn't work, but it wasn't not only that it didn't work, there were two new systems, quantum mechanics, relativity theory, that covered all the data, everything that was known by classical physics, but accounted for these, but you had to radically challenge and reject some of your fundamental assumptions to be able to jump, jump into the new dinghy. We have now scientifically a view of the mind that's got gaping holes, much, much bigger than the ultraviolet catastrophe. It's got gaping holes in it. The ship's, the, the dinghy is sinking. It's kind of like, ridiculous. It's really it's a submarine that happens to be on the surface right now. But unless there's some alternative, people will still stay in their, sink, their sinking dinghy of materialistic worldview of existence as a whole and the mind in particular. They'll stay in that because they figure, what's the option? The option is not just a theory. There has to be empirical evidence. That's what Max Planck was focusing on. There was empirical evidence, and then a new interpretation. Einstein, empirical evidence, new interpretation. You need both. And so where does the empirical evidence come from? Well, not by studying the brain. That's just going to be business as usual. It's a loop. It's circular thinking. You're studying it materialistically. What do you expect? You're going to get a materialistic result. That is just loopity-loop logic. And if you're studying the brain, if you're studying behavior, it's the same thing. You're studying studying the mind materialistically, you're always going to come out with a materialistic answer. So, what's the antidote? Samadhi, directed in upon the mind, to fathom the nature of consciousness, its origins, its potentials, the inner resources. And the inner resources to find one of the greatest revolutions that actually happiness lies within. It's a simple thing. And the great sages of history have been saying it for millennia. For millennia, east, west, throughout history. And materialism just plugs its ears, closes its eyes, says, uh-uh, uh-uh. Just give us more entertainment, more gizmos, more technology, and better drugs. Yay, yes, drugs. Because that's where all the profit is. And of course, materialism is all about profit. And the wisdom tradition is all about genuine happiness. So it's with samadhi that you tap into your inner resources. You find at the very least the bliss, the luminosity, non-conceptuality, the wealth within at the relative level. Then you may be primed to go really deep. 
So, for all of those who are not exploring the inner resources, who are still staring in the headlights of samsara with a big, happy, stupid grin, ourselves included, this is, again, not Buddhist versus non-Buddhist. It's not even religious people versus non-religious people. It's everybody who's stuck mired down in the bog of attachment, craving, clinging, and loving it. Like the hyena with the bloody jaws going back to brag to the back. Oh, Tibetans would say, oh, Ninja, Ninja. Such compassion. So let's feel compassion for ourselves, compassion for others, and raise the flag of liberation. Yeah. Find a comfortable position. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state.
and arouse your intelligence, your imagination, and your memory. Is there any truth to this reality of suffering, of change? Have you experienced it yourself? Enjoying the bounties reaped by attachment and clinging, which turn out to be like a ticking time bomb, ready to blow up in your face at any moment, and certain, certain, to lead to disappointment, to suffering. The Tibetan liturgy reads, why couldn't we all be free of suffering and its causes? Why couldn't we be all? We all be free of the suffering of change and its causes. Why couldn't we be free of attachment? May we be free. And if you will arouse this inspiration for yourself to envision another way of pursuing happiness that's not doomed to failure by tapping into the true causes of happiness, eradicating the true causes of misery, With each in-breath, arouse the yearning for freedom, 
Breathe in the darkness of such suffering and its underlying causes. Imagine, if you will, this darkness being drawn into and dissolving without trace. Into the light at your heart. Imagine being free. Imagine gradually and gently shifting your priorities away from the hedonic to genuine happiness and the cultivation of its true causes. You being the first recipient, the first beneficiary of this revolutionary move towards wisdom. And imagine the resultant freedom, the relief. Turn your attention outwards and focus where you will, arousing with each in-breath this aspiration, beginning with the question, why couldn't you be free? Since these causes of suffering are not ingrained, they're not intrinsic, they're not inevitable, why couldn't you be free? May you be free. With each in-breath arouse this aspiration. And imagine its realization.
then release all appearances, and to the best of your ability, single-pointedly, withdraw your awareness into itself, and let it descend to its relative ground, which is a source of genuine happiness and freedom from the suffering of change. In terms of a competing theory of the nature of the mind and consciousness as an alternative to the materialistic, reductionistic view, one good candidate is this view of coarse mind, substrate consciousness, primordial consciousness, which in a large framework makes accountable, intelligible, understandable everything that's known about the mind and brain. There's nothing left out. Obviously, Buddhism doesn't have all that detailed knowledge. But this framework makes everything, it all makes sense. There's, there are no anomalies there. It makes sense. And it covers a wide range of phenomena that are utterly inexplicable from a materialistic framework. Like precognition, remote viewing, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, the list goes on and on and on. Well known to almost everybody besides the materialists. So the theory is there. But what we don't yet have is the controlled experiment. We have anecdotes all over the place, all over the world. I knew one Jordanian atomic physicist, really cool guy. He came and visited me at Santa Barbara. Professor of atomic physics in Jordan and in Iraq. This is years ago, before the Iraq war, or wars. He was raised in Jordan, and he was also a Sufi dervish, accomplished one. I, I actually saw a whole video. He was, it was in a laboratory. He was an accomplished dervish. He really knew what he's talking about. And he said, he, when he was growing up in Jordan, he's about my age, I think, when he was growing up in Jordan, he said, paranormal or kind of 
paranormal, supernatural kind of things. Everybody knew about them. You, they were in the village. Everybody knew. You had to be a dumbbell not to know about them. They were so commonly illustrated by the, by the dervishes here, the Sufi there, and so forth. They're like, you didn't know that? Where, where, which hole did you stick your head into the last, your whole life? But again, all we have is then anecdotes. So Einstein himself, when he came up with special relativity, as I recall, there was no evidence for it. He couldn't say, oh, yeah, we have this evidence of the invariant speed of light, that no, nothing in the universe travels faster than the speed of light. There was no evidence for that. It was incredibly brilliant, elegant, and very simple theory, special relativity. General relativity came out, what, eight, ten years later. Oh, much more sophisticated. But there's no evidence for it. But there was a the theory that radically undermined fundamental assumptions in all of physics. And then before long, though, the evidence started coming in and controlled experiments. And lo and behold, he became the genius of the, of the planet, you know. Well, as a matter of curiosity, yesterday came out in the news, it's all over the news, worldwide, BBC, America, all over the place, that some physicists in, in CERN have now done some extremely careful experiments, and it seems they found that neutrinos can, tra- can travel faster than the speed of light. And they analyzed it, they analyzed it, it couldn't be, it couldn't be, it couldn't be, it couldn't be, and the data are still there, just glaring back at them. And so they're sending it out and said, help. It seems like something goes faster than the speed of light, and we know it shouldn't, but you do it. You do it. You know, that's, eh. And they said, if this is true, then we're, we're, we're screwed. <laughs> that is something we've been assuming to be true for a hundred years is not true, and that means it's never been true. And so please check it. Please do it yourself. I, want, I don't want this to be true. It may be true, may not be. But if in a controlled experiment with accomplished contemplatives and critical, rigorous, open-minded scientists, if it can be demonstrated that consciousness does not vanish at death, the revolution from that, you'll be hearing that from your great-great-great-grandchildren. The sonic boom from that will be just big. So let's make it so.